All right, we are back. As promised at the top of the program, we will now um, continue our long series of discussions here we've had in recent weeks, and which we'll continue to do about the 50th anniversary of the passing of John F. Kennedy. Joining us on tonight's show to continue that would be historian and our good pal, Jim DiEugenio. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Nice, nice to be here. I, I know you were uh, kind of hot under the collar about this recent Parkland movie, and uh, I know no one is seeing it, so I don't want to spend a lot of time kicking kicking it, uh, although it obviously deserves it, but uh, uh, what's the worst thing they did in that movie? Well, one of the worst things they did is that they talked about and showed the Zapruder film being handled, but you never showed the Zapruder film all the way through. And whenever they showed the Zapruder film, almost the whole time, the camera was on the people watching the film instead of the film. Very, very interesting. Just like when they showed the Parkland hospital scenes, they never showed the back of Kennedy's head, mm-hmm. which, as you know, almost all the witnesses, they said they saw this baseball-sized hole in the back of Kennedy's head. Mm-hmm. You know, so those are the kind of things that they did not disclose in the film. In fact, they were very careful, I believe, not to put them in there. But the book, Reclaiming Parkland, is the book we're talking about. It's about that, but it's also about Vincent Bugliosi's book called Reclaiming History. That's why the book's called Reclaiming Parkland. Right. And it's also about Tom Hanks' career. And finally, it's about the CIA in Hollywood today, which is something I didn't know anything about until I started writing this book. At the conference, Jim, they were, they were uh, I guess Lisa was talking about how they, the, the CIA has an office in Hollywood. So does the Pentagon. If you want to have a movie about, you know, using an aircraft carrier, well, the Pentagon may help you if, you if they like the content of your movie. And I guess the same goes for the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, the CIA had an office in, 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 in movie land for about, if I remember correctly, about 12 years, from about 1996 to 2008. And the guy running it was a guy named Chase Brandon. And he was so effective, you know, in turning around. And in, in my book, I entitled the part on him, Chase Brandon Moves the Mountain. He was so effective in turning around the depiction of the CIA in Hollywood movies that he retired, and then his successor only lasted a year and a half. Then after that, they said, we really don't need the office anymore because we have so many people cooperating with us willingly. In other words, these movie guys we're now bringing their scripts to the CIA. You know? Right. There was a time when nobody <laughs> would even think of doing that, okay, in this country. But now Chase Brandon made it an acceptable thing to do. So that's what a large part of the last part of my book is about, this very, very, I believe, incestuous relationship between the Pentagon and the CIA and what I call, you know, the, the new Hollywood. And how it's, it's really doubtful with everything as it is today, whether Oliver Stone could have ever got his movie made, yeah. you know, with conditions as they are in, 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 in the movie colony today. Well, speaking of that, I understand that Stone uh, next week is going to reissue JFK, and, I, and, and you'll be able, we'll be able to see it in the big screen, which, is, which I think is, uh, is a good thing. I already have my tickets for the Arclight. I think it's November the 12th. Okay. Okay, I'll definitely be there. And I think Oliver is going to be speaking after the movie. You know, and that screening is almost already sold out. You know, there's going to be a lot of people there. So that should be uh, really, really... And I guess, I guess you know about this, but Oliver is starting to make the rounds now. He was on Democracy Now! two days ago. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. 
Yeah, and that was a really interesting hour with him and Peter Kuznick, the co-author of his book, The Untold History of the United States. And I understand he was on Piers Morgan for a, a very brief talk, and I think he's actually going to be uh, on, a, he was on another show, okay, and he's going to be on another show. This is very good because, uh, you know, I didn't think he was going to be doing any of this stuff because he had been so burned from what, the, what they did to him on the movie that he kind of intimated to me he really didn't want to get in the middle of this again. But I think him being at the WEC conference, you, know, you could see it that night they did the media panel. Right. You were there, weren't you? For that I was, one? yes, I was. You, you could see the juices started flowing a little bit, <laughs> you know, with Oliver during that media panel. Yes. And so I remember when I went back to the Marriott that night, I was talking to David Talbot, and I said, I think Oliver is getting the dander up again. I think we can trust that he's going to be doing uh, a little bit more than we thought he was going to do. And Eddie has. You know, much to my surprise, and, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad he's doing it. Well, me too, Jim, and I hope that we'll be a future guest on this program. Uh, well, when he was up on the dais there that night he had with Lisa Pease, Jeff Morley, uh, uh, Jerry Polikoff, David Talbot, and, and Russ Baker, I mean, the only one we haven't had on has been, been Stone, so I hope we can complete that, that cycle in the future. Let, let's talk about uh, your talk. You gave a, a rousing, outstanding talk I at Duquesne University about JFK, and in this case, you took the focus off the two things people generally tend to look at with regards to foreign policy, which is Cuba and Vietnam, and you said, well, there's a lot more to it than that. He did have a more global view about the future of, uh, of Africa and other, and, and other non-aligned nations. Yeah, well, I was actually talking about Africa and the Middle East and Indonesia, Okay, which is a huge country. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I started to talk. You know, I said, you know, if you read these JFK assassination books, you'd think that all Kennedy was ever interested in was Vietnam and Cuba. And that occupied the whole thousand days while he was in the White House. You know, but there's been more recent scholarship, and which I've been lucky enough to look at. You see, when we look at Cuba and Vietnam as isolated instances, we miss the point of Kennedy's grand design for his foreign policy. And if you remember in that talk I gave, this began on a trip he made to Saigon back in 1951. All right, and he met a guy named Edmund Gullion, mm -hmm. who I'd be willing to wager 90% uh, of the people who work in this field had never heard of that guy's name, you know, before I put his picture up on the screen. But Gullion, if you ask me, is one of the most important people in the whole Kennedy saga because if Kennedy would have never met Gullion, he might have never been assassinated. Because at, uh, what Gullion told him, he was a, um, a French-speaking American diplomat who had been stationed in Saigon because France had gone in after the war to try and recolonize Vietnam. And what Gullion told Kennedy is that France will never win this war. Okay, for the simple reason that Ho Chi Minh had fired up too many young men and that to the point that they would actually be willing to die rather than go back under the colonial system of France. And therefore, France could never win a war of attrition like that because the home front would never support it. And that, of course, ended up being prophetic because that is what happened. Kennedy was very, very impressed by that analysis, and it had a profound influence you know, on his foreign policy thinking from then onward. And we know this for two reasons, because... Gullion was then brought into the White House when Kennedy became president. I don't think I said that in my Duquesne talk, but that last picture I showed of them sitting across from each other was in the White House. 
1961. And secondly, Kennedy starts to make a series of speeches that, as I tried to impress upon the audience, it was not just anti-Republican. It was also anti-Democrat. He was saying that both sides were wrong in this debate over anti-communism because in the non-aligned world, or the third world, these people didn't care who they were getting the help from, whether you associated with Russia, whether you associated with America. They just needed the help to get out from under all the terrible effects that the colonial system had had in Africa, Middle East, and Asia. Okay, and this is a point that Kennedy pounded home to the point that, if you remember, when he tried to give a speech for Adlai Stevenson in 1956, Stevenson told him, don't do any more speeches for me, <laughs> because he, <laughs> he thought the message was, like, too radical. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I guess the first time he really got in the, in the cover of Time and really made a national splash as a senator right. was he was speaking for the Algerian independence movement, saying that, you know, right. this is something that, that these people may need to be able to go their own way. Right, and, and that was the next thing that I talked about in my talk was the whole Algeria thing, where Kennedy made this, this great speech. You know, every time I read this thing, I just marvel at it. You know, in 1957, July of 1957, he takes the floor of the Senate, and he assails Dulles and Eisenhower and Nixon for not standing up to France and telling them it's time to get out of Algeria, right. okay, for both you and Algeria. Okay, there's no way in the world that you're going to win this war. And, and then he added, I mean, didn't we just say the same message three years ago in Indochina? But how short are our memories? Because the same thing's happening again. You know, wouldn't, be a, wouldn't we have been a better friend of France if we had told her that it was time to get out of Saigon? And wouldn't we be a better friend of France if we tell them it's time to get out of Algiers? It's a tremendous speech, okay, uh, just terrific. And this one really kind of rocked everybody, okay. He was attacked by John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower, and Nixon. The vast majority of newspaper editorials were negative, but he became the guy who was now controversial. He was the guy that, that Dulles and Eisenhower were talking about, and this helped him become the front runner you know, in the 1960 race yeah. to the White House. When I study this now, I've come to the conclusion that Kennedy's foreign policy was already set once he was elected, and that Vietnam and Cuba are extensions of a gestalt system that he'd already decided upon a long time ago. And I tried to show this by putting that one slide up there, that, you know, we are not going to commit combat troops into the third world. You know, because if we did that, we'd be doing the same thing that France did in Algeria and in Vietnam. Okay, and we'll have the same fate that they did, because we're going to be siding with the oppressor. And so that's why I believe that he refused all those requests, you know, to send combat troops into Vietnam. Because I started it off with that question. I go, in all these books you read that Kennedy never committed combat troops to Vietnam. Nobody ever answers a question or even poses the question, why did he refuse all those requests? What made him so different than everybody else who wanted to send troops into Vietnam? Why didn't he bail out the Bay of Pigs when everybody was telling him there was that Navy task force right off the shore of Cuba? 
which he could have said in this to bail out the Bay of Pigs. Why didn't he bomb the missile silos in Cuba when everybody was telling him to go ahead and bomb those silos? He didn't do it. Why? You know, so that was a question that always bothered me. And so then that's what I addressed in this talk. Yeah. And I think I came to a, a pretty good conclusion. I finally began to see that Kennedy's foreign policy was really long in the making and was very systematic throughout the world. And it wasn't just Vietnam and Cuba. Those are just extensions, you know, of a much bigger view of the world. It was a fine, fine talk. It got a well-deserved good reaction. Jim Diogenio, a researcher par excellence. We hope you will come back again. And, uh, and, and I, by God, if I have anything to do with it, you will. Okay, thank you so much. All right, I do want to thank Robin Fox for alerting me to the fact that there's a Time article out currently by Jack Dickey about the Duquesne Conference. And uh, what does Mr. Dickey, who usually writes for Sports Illustrated, manage to write about? Well, John McAdams, the, the resident skeptic among the people who tend to think there's something amiss with the Warren Report, etc. Apparently he and Max Holland of The Nation decided to go so the two of them wouldn't be the only debunkers among the crowd. I've tangled with John McAdams in the past, and I probably need to tell you about it, but I don't think I'm going to go into it today. But the astonishingly dismissive tone of this article about what was a very good conference with a lot of interesting information to instead focus on the guy that just says, ah, all this is a bunch of BS explains why it is we think we need to talk about this subject on this program and we'll continue to do so in the weeks to come. But I've got a bombshell of an article from The Economist I've been sitting on since the um, October 19th issue, and this one needs to be talked about at a b some length, so I'm going to devote the rest of this segment to doing that. And i got to tell you, I'm a little bit freaked out by this piece, and I think I can't do better than to just quote from it. To quote first an editorial piece related to the article. A simple idea underpins science. Trust but verify. Results should always be subject to challenge from experiment. That simple but powerful idea has generated a vast body of knowledge. Since its birth in the 17th century, modern science has changed the world beyond recognition and overwhelmingly for the better. But success can breed complacency. Modern scientists are doing too much trusting and not enough verifying to the detriment of the whole of science and of humanity. Too many of the findings that fill the academic ether are the result of shoddy experiments or poor analysis. A rule of thumb among biochemistry venture capitalists is that half of published research cannot be replicated. Even that may be optimistic. Last year, researchers at one biotech firm, Amgen, found they could reproduce just six of 53 landmark studies in cancer research. Earlier, a group at Bayer, a drug company, managed to repeat just a quarter of 67 similarly important papers. A leading computer scientist frets that three quarters of papers in his subfield are bunk. Now, if that doesn't scare the hell out of you, <laughs> you must be on Valium. The editors go on. Even when flawed research does not put people's lives at risk, and much of it is too far from the market to do so, it squanders money and the efforts of some of the world's best minds. The opportunity costs of stymied progress are hard to quantify, but they are likely to be vast and they could be rising. 
One reason is the competitiveness of science. In the 1950s, when modern academic research took shape after its successes in the Second World War, it was still a rarefied pastime. The entire club of scientists numbered a few hundred thousand. As their ranks have swelled to six to seven million active researchers on the latest reckoning, scientists have lost their taste for self-policing and quality control. The obligation to publish or perish has come to rule over academic life. Competition for jobs is cutthroat. Full professors in America earned an average of $135,000 in 2012, more than judges. Every year, six freshly minted PhDs vie for every academic post. Nowadays, verification, which is the replication of other people's work, does little to advance a researcher's career. And without verification, dubious findings live on to mislead. Note to the editors. Failures to prove a hypothesis are rarely even offered for publication, let alone accepted. Negative results now account for only 14% of published papers, down from 30% in 1990. Yet knowing what is false is as important to science as knowing what is true. The failure to report failures means that researchers waste money and effort exploring blind alleys already investigated by other scientists. The hallowed process of peer review is not all it's cracked up to be either. When a prominent medical journal ran research past other experts in the field that found that most of the reviewers failed to spot mistakes it had deliberately inserted into papers even after being told they were being tested. The editors note that careerism often encourages exaggeration and the cherry-picking of results. In order to safeguard their exclusivity, the leading journals impose high rejection rates in excess of 90% of submitted manuscripts. The most striking findings have the greatest chance of making it onto the page. Little wonder that one in three researchers knows of a colleague who has pepped up a paper by, say, excluding inconvenient data from results, quote, based on a gut feeling, unquote. And they note that as more research teams around the world work on a problem, the odds shorten that at least one will fall prey to an honest confusion between the sweet signal of general discovery and a freak of statistical noise. Such spurious correlations are often recorded in journals eager for startling papers. If they touch on drinking wine, going senile, or letting children play video games, they may well command the front pages of newspapers, too. This is something we're going to have to talk about more in the future to uh, take a few items out of the, the, the article itself, which went on for several pages in The Economist. The idea that there are a lot of uncorrected flaws in published studies may seem hard to square with the fact that almost all of them have been through peer review. This sort of scrutiny by disinterested experts acting out of a sense of professional obligation rather than for pay is often said to make the scientific literature particularly reliable. In practice, it is poor at detecting many types of errors. John Bohannon, a, bi a biologist at Harvard, recently submitted a pseudonymous paper on the effects of a chemical derived from lichen on cancer cells to 304 journals, describing themselves as using peer review. An unusual move. But it was an unusual paper, concocted wholesale and stuffed with clangers in study design, analysis, and interpretation of results. Receiving this dog's dinner from a fictitious researcher at a made-up university, 157 of the journals accepted it for publication. Dr. Bohannon's sting was directed at the lower tier of academic journals, but in a classic 1998 study, 
Fiona Godley, editor of the prestigious British Medical Journal, sent an article containing eight deliberate mistakes in study design, analysis, and interpretation to more than 200 of the BMJ's regular reviewers. Not one picked out all the mistakes. On average, they reported fewer than two. Some did not spot any. Noted the magazine, as well as not spotting things they ought to spot, there's a lot that peer reviewers do not even try and check. They do not typically reanalyze the data presented from scratch, contending themselves with a sense that the author's analysis is properly conceived. And they cannot be expected to spot deliberate falsifications if they're carried out with even a modicum of subtlety. Noted the magazine, fraud is very likely second to incompetence in generating erroneous results, though it is hard to tell for certain. Anyway, this is a scary piece, and we're going to have to talk about it uh, more after we catch our breath, I think. All right, we need to get out, but I don't want to end on something quite that crazy, so I'll end on something that's a little less crazy, but crazy. Piece from Sacramento Beat, dated November 3rd. It's actually a reprint from uh, the New York Times article by Donald J. McNeil about our good pals down at Stanford. To quote from it, it's midnights to midnight, a sultry full moon hangs over Stanford's Memorial Church. In the quad, thousands of students mill around, some bobbing drunkenly, some giggling nervously, most of them wearing clothes. Finally, a male senior saunters up to a group of the youngest looking women and asks, hey you freshmen, can I kiss you? As the Stanford band plays and a giant screen shows famous movie clutches, the bravest women step forward and receive the traditional welcome to one of the nation's most prestigious universities, a big, wet, upperclassman smack. Days later, another tradition arrives, flu and mononucleosis. Full moon on the quad, normally celebrated beneath the academic year's first full moon, but this year held October 22nd because of a conflict with homecoming, is an event unique in U.S. education, an orgy of interclass kissing, reluctantly but officially sanctioned by the university. It's a domestic example of a new field in public health, mass gathering medicine. The best known example is Saudi Arabia's multi-million dollar effort to keep the annual pilgrimage to Mecca as epidemic free as possible. For Stanford, the struggle is, since officials can outlaw it, yes, they have tried, how can they make it safer? Well, apparently to make it safer, the evening is overseen by student sobriety monitors and decorated with hand-drawn signs of the oak that usually say, Beat Cal, but in this case bearing slogans like, Consent is sexy. Apparently this tradition dates back to the uh, supposedly turn of the century, but was thought of mostly folklore, but somebody at Stanford back in 1988 decided to dust it off and revive it. Within the next decade, it became a thing. Supposedly thousands were showing up. So starting in 2002, the deans debated outlawing it. Then they rejected that as futile and decided to instead impose order. Now the quad is barricaded. Campus police check student IDs and paramedics stand by. We have to ask you, dear listener, if any of you know anything about this thing going on down at Stanford, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Because this sounds pretty... Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.